Hello, you're listening to the 10 by 9 podcast. I'm Paul Doran, co-founder of 10 by 9 along with Padraig Tuma. We started 10 by 9 in the Black Box in Belfast in September 2011 and we're still there every month. It's a live event where nine people have up to 10 minutes each to tell a true story from their own life and we love it. BBC Radio Ulster has been broadcasting some of our stories in a programme called Telltales. If you miss it on the radio, you can always try the BBC Sounds app. In the meantime, here are four stories you won't hear on the radio show, recorded at different evenings over the summer. And first, we have a love story for you. A first love story, from a first-timer. Here's David Brazil. I was an awkward, miserable child. When I was very young, I had a speech impediment and was severely long-sighted which meant I had to wear thick brown national health spectacles, often with a patch over one eye. I was also incredibly clumsy, so I kept breaking the spectacles. My mom would then repair them with sellotape and sticking plaster and send me back to school. For a while, I wore special shoes which had leg braces fitted to fix uh, a fetal misalignment of my hips. I was a sickly child, always suffering from colds and tonsillitis and ear infections. For a while, Mum said she had appointments with me at every outpatient department in the hospital, except maternity. (laughs) These are not experiences that turn you into a confident, outgoing, popular child. These are the things that turn you into a shy, introverted, slightly awkward child. These are the things that push you out to the edge. And I was lonely on the edge. By the age of 16... I'd never had a girlfriend, unless you count Natalie Parrish, who I agreed to share with my friend Darren. I don't think we ever told Natalie about it, so it probably doesn't count. By the age of 16, I'd never had a girlfriend. Even some of my dorkiest of friends had managed it, but I hadn't. My friend Darren had had loads. So I thought it was too late, that it would never happen. It seemed so improbable. The only thing that gave me any hope at all was a dream I'd had when I was 14. Now, I don't believe in predictions. I don't believe in prophecy. I don't believe in dreams being anything supernatural. But this dream was so vivid, so real, so perfect that it burned itself into my memory in a way that was both painful and comforting so that I can still vividly remember it nearly 30 years later. It was a simple dream. In the dream, I'm standing at the edge of a cornfield leaning against a gate. It's a brilliantly sunny day. Everything is in hazy, slow motion, and there's a girl. I can't really see her, can't see her face. I just know that she's there, and I have this overwhelming feeling of being loved and in love. I remember waking from that dream feeling totally bereft, thinking that I'd felt something real and true and that I'd lost it. Maybe this meant it wasn't impossible. Maybe this meant it could happen. I honestly couldn't imagine how it ever would. So it's Christmas Eve, 1984. I'm 16, standing in a small wooden hut beside a church where our youth group is having a Christmas party. We were called Squibs. I still don't know why. There's music, there are small secret stashes of alcohol, and there is dancing. I am not dancing. Even after half a pint of snake bite, that's um, equal parts Heineken and Strongbow, if you want the recipe. I don't dance. But I'm standing at the edge watching, and it's fun. It's the best Christmas ever. We're a small group of friends from the same school, the same church. Band-Aid's Do They Know It's Christmas is blaring out from a cassette deck, singing, It's Christmas time, there's no need to be afraid. 
I am becoming increasingly terrified, mainly because our friend Paula has brought her best friend, Tracy, to the party. I was fascinated by Tracy immediately. She was quiet, incredibly pretty, and she was dancing in a way that seemed so self-contained and mysterious, I couldn't stop watching. At some point earlier in the evening, with all the confidence of Snakebite, I had hidden her Michael Jackson cassette, and she had kicked me in the shins. Things were going well. <laughs> so I'm standing on the edge of the circle when suddenly, out of nowhere, Tracy grabs me by the scarf. It was the 80s, we were all wearing scarves indoors. She pulls me back into the circle, swings me around, we dance together briefly, and then she lets go of one end of the scarf so that I fall over. She keeps the scarf, refuses to give it back, and wears it for the rest of the night. For me, it was love at first sight. For her, it took about three months. After Christmas, we started bumping into each other at church. At school, she'd walk past my desk provocatively in history. She also sat behind me in math so that I'd often have to turn around to casually ask for a pencil or ask a question. I found I could talk to her, which was unusual. Eventually, I plucked up the courage to ask her if she'd go out with me, and amazingly, she said no. <laughs> but she said it kindly, and there was reasons, and we kept talking, and we got to know each other more, and sometimes I'd walk home with her, and sometimes we would stand and talk by her front gate, and it felt like there was something there. So after another few weeks, I asked her out again, and this time, she said no. <laughs> So we talked some more, our friends giggled about us behind our backs, and we got to know each other. And after a few more weeks, I asked if she'd go out with me again. And this time, she said, sort of. <laughs> For three months, we circled, three months of talking, laughing, slowly opening up to each other. Then at the end of March, at another party, a wedding disco in the same church hall, we had a row, because I, quite the ladies' man now, sort of danced with someone else. And then we sat in a dark church alone together for a while, went back into the disco, and danced all of the slow dances together. The next day, when I asked her on the phone if we could go out together, she said, I think we already are. Last year, Tracy and I celebrated our silver wedding anniversary. At another wedding party just a few years ago, I found myself, as usual, standing alone on the edge of the dance floor just outside the lights, nursing a pint, not dancing, but watching her dance. I realized it's where I've often stood over the years. It's where I feel the most comfortable, and as long as I can see her, watch her, and at the end of an evening, maybe slow shuffle around to a slow dance, then that's where I'm happy. I wrote a poem about that moment, about the dream and about how we met and about how many times I've stood there. Standing on the edge of a dance floor, watching my wants, my always, standing on the edge of a dance floor, watching my future wife. There was a comedian on TV recently, I think it might have been Angela Barnes, who said she can't stand people who marry their childhood sweethearts. They really annoy her. There are seven billion people in the world, she says. What are the odds that the perfect one for you is going to sit behind you in mass? She's got a point, I suppose. But one of the things I learned in O-level statistics is that just because something is improbable doesn't make it impossible. And I'm pretty sure that the day I learned that, sitting in maths, my billion to one chance was sitting at the desk right behind me.
Brilliant. Thanks so much, David. And we were delighted Tracy was there to hear it. That was at the Fiddler's Green Festival in Ross Trevor. Next, we have two stories back-to-back recorded at a very lively night at the Black Box as part of Belfast Pride. You'll hear Jesse Arthur in a moment, but first, here's Donna Feehan. I can't do it. I can't go out looking like this, she squeals. What do you mean? Sure it's grand, I say. We don't need to book a taxi. I can fly us over. I've got bloody wings. I bite my lip to stop myself from laughing. Look at the shape of me. I look like I'm about to take off, she yells, pointing to these interesting twists of her, unhappy with the style and eyes welling up. I stifle my giggles. It was the most important day of our lives and she wanted to look perfect. I hate it. I'm just going to take it out and just wash it, she continued. I tried to reassure her. You paid a bloody fortune for it. It's fine, honestly. But she had written off the day before it had even started. Looking around the tools to my disposal, I grab clips and hairspray and start poking at her hair. How's that? I say, really chuffed with myself. She looks in the mirror, inspecting all around and mutters, I guess that's a bit better, with a smile breaking on her face. Right, you're sorted. Dress on, drink up, we need to be out of here for 20. I bark. I knew she knew she darn't disagree. Striding proudly through the park in her shades, we walk hand in hand as Gorn snaps furiously. He arranges us at the pavilion and we both giggle with excited nerves, knowing our big moment had finally arrived. Holding, holding hands, he begins the formalities as we stand at the spot we dreamt about for months. Now, if you like to exchange vows, our efficient asks. She starts to rhyme off her carefully worded scribbles as I gush with every word. She finishes allowing me to return the favor I hadn't realised how my words were making her feel until I looked up from my page and saw a tear stream down her face. I love you, baby, I say. Can I do my joking values now? Scrambling for the scrap of paper I'd written on flight. Lots of giggling later, the rest paid off. During the exchange of rings, a passerby shouts, Oh my God, you're getting married! Did you guys elope? Ever obliging, I reply, yes, from Ireland. And she scolds me. Eh, we're kind of in the middle of something here, baby. And I'm back to earth with a thud. As Gorn wraps up proceedings, we happily indulge in our first married kiss to the cheers and claps of delighted strangers. Christ, this is mental. I really don't want to die yet, I complain. Sure, this is old hat to this lot. There must be ten of these a day, my wife answers. And we're going to get killed by one of these bloody yokes at this rate. I don't think I want the picture that badly. Gorn flags down the famous yellow cab and we're put in position in the middle of a busy road with cars flying by. Camera flashes blind us temporarily, but worth it for the perfect picture. Seconds later, we're standing in the middle of the square, gazing up at gigantic 2D versions of ourselves, illuminated by millions of bulbs. This is bloody crazy. Do you think we'd be fussed over this much at home, I ask? Given that technically we aren't married at home, I highly doubt it, my wife reminds me. How on earth could I forget the main reason we went abroad in the first place? Champagne, here now, he orders, snapping fingers with urgency. Before we even get our asses on the seat, we are handled, handed bubbled filled flutes, another wonderful surprise from a perfect stranger. We haven't even went to dinner yet. How much mileage do you think we can get out of these dresses, my wife asks. <laughs> For two people who really don't like much fuss, we are overwhelmed by how we're being treated. Strangers toast us sincerely with the raise of a glass. People congratulate us as as we pass by and we're on cloud nine. Right, you first, I prompt. 
Then be in bed, you know that, but my wife calls home regardless. My new in-laws are delighted for us and can't wait to hear about it all whenever we get home. My folks next, and we learn how they toasted us from across the Atlantic at the exact time of our ceremony, a gesture which really touched us. 48 stories later, we arrive. The views are breathtaking. The maitre d' shows us to her seats and guests congratulate and compliment us as we pass by. We are led to an intimate table for two beside the window as we slowly lap the big apple. Good evening, ladies, and welcome to The View. My name is Tom, and I'll be your waiter for tonight, he tells us. We thank him, and he detects the accent. Oh, God. Oh, wow. So did you guys elope? We did, I say. We're from Ireland, Northern Ireland specifically, but our marriage isn't recognised back home. You are kidding, Tom cries. Wasn't it legalised recently? My wife attempts to explain, but we can tell from Tom's perplexed facial expressions he is confused. Well, I'm very happy you guys chose to come here. Where did you do it? The, the excitement fills Tom as we tell him Central Park. He reaches for his phone, opening photos and sharing intimate moments of his wedding day to his husband in the same location just a few years earlier. The three of us relish in the moment, realising what a small world it really is. Tom takes her order and leaves. We take in each new view and are grateful for the moment. We did it, baby, I say. We're wifeys now. And my wife grins. Can this day get any better? And we bask in the moment. Tom return, returns with champagne, effortlessly removing the cork without spillage. After he pours, he begins to say, now ladies, just so you know, you don't need to worry about the check tonight. It's all been taken care of. We turn and look at each other, really confused. What? By who? Knowing it was neither of us. <laughs> Remaining tight-lipped, Tom reassured us that it was all in hand, not to worry and just to enjoy our evening. As he walks away, we lean into one another, putting our best detective skills to the test, trying to work out who our mystery pair was. We hadn't told anybody where we had booked for dinner, so we immediately ruled out our friends and family. Could it have been Tom? Was he really that happy for us? Surely not, but that left us precious other avenues to explore. We laugh. Who would be mad enough to miss a mortgage payment just to cover our dinner bill? <laughs> Three courses, two bottles of champagne, and one surprise celebration cake later, we decide to call it a night. Still unconvinced of Tom's re revelation, we expect to be handed the bill as he approaches us. So ladies, now you've finished your meal, I can tell you it was the three ladies just sitting behind you who took care of your cheque, gesturing to an empty table. They didn't want me to say anything until they left, so you didn't feel obliged to thank them. Words escape us due to the act of kindness that sought absolutely no gratitude. We ask if they left contact details, but nothing. Amazed by the most perfect gesture to end the most perfect day, we thank Tom for his attention and we make our way back to the hotel. Two relaxing weeks later, we're homeward bound. Ladies and gentlemen, we'll be landing in approximately 40 minutes. We hope you've enjoyed your flight. The attendant announces. Oh, I can't believe it's all over, I moan. Reaching for my hand, my wife comforts me. We've still got a party to look forward to. It'll be great seeing and celebrating with everybody. True, I agree. But I gaze out the plastic window, feeling like a child who's about to have their Christmas toys taken from them. I hate that our marriage is downgraded the second we land. We went to so much effort to make sure that we actually got married. And in 40 minutes, it's all going to be undone. And I sulk. My wife leans in. No one can take this away from us, baby. 
We have our marriage certificate, our family know we're married, we know we're married, and our friends know we're married, and that's what really matters. She reassures me. Do you know what? My wife continues. I'm going to write a letter. I want people to understand what it's like to be in our shoes. And so she did. Circulating said letter in social media and gaining quite a lot of traction. It seems apt to finish with a short, short extract. I believe in equality, true equality, not this illusion of being the same but different, which we peddle in Northern Ireland. I believe that regardless of who we love, we are all equals and should be treated as such. Let me live my life as a married woman in my own country, my home, just as you are able to live yours. Let me love and marry with all the legal protections you are afforded without hesitation. I ask you to please end this inequality. Roll on the 21st of October. This kind of evil does not belong in the world. I can still hear my dad's words ringing in my ears. I was 10 years old, and he was in the middle of giving me and my brothers one of his sermons, a preacher always practicing for Sunday. He had just informed us that we were now boycotting a popular TV channel because they aired an after-school program about a young boy's journey of coming to terms with being gay. He told us that they were promoting the gay agenda. In one moment, he was talking about God's love, and in the next, he was reminding us about hell and the kinds of people that he believed belong there. Even then, I knew that something just wasn't right. It didn't add up. I was an inquisitive child, and the thought burned on my mind that morning. Why would a God of love send people to hell? I couldn't fathom how God's love fit together with my dad's notion of the afterlife. I was still a child, so I didn't have any reason to doubt what he was saying. I had learned at an early age not to ask difficult questions out loud for fear that I might end up in his version of the afterlife. 1989. I was 12 years old when I flew across America on my own from Atlanta, Georgia, to Los Angeles, California. As a rite of passage, my parents had agreed to let my grandpa pay for me to take this trip of a lifetime to visit him and the rest of my extended family in California. I was a scrawny, shy, naive, and sheltered 12-year-old kid and had basically grown up in a bubble. I didn't have any fashion sense. I probably still don't. Uh, no street smarts and no real idea of the real world outside of that bubble. So I boarded the plane on my own and I flew across the country. I was so nervous that I nearly shit myself. <laughs> and that's not a play on words. But thankfully I made it to the plane's small toilet just in time to save myself the embarrassment of a lifetime. So while in California, my family took me up to their favorite beach house for a few days. Where I grew up, there were no beaches and my parents hated the sand. So it was a truly new and exciting experience for me. On the second day at the beach, my excitement turned back into a bit of nervousness when I was told that my Aunt Janice and her one-year-old daughter Maddie were driving up from San Diego just to see me. I was nervous because Aunt Janice is my dad's openly gay sister, and I had never met her before. 
He was, she was the sister that he didn't talk about out loud very often, the sister that he felt the need to protect me from, the sister that I had never met simply because she was gay. My dad's words rang in my ears again as she arrived at the beach. This kind of evil doesn't belong in the world. So as she walked towards me from the car, I took a deep, nervous breath. She approached with a big, warm smile, Maddie toddling just behind her, stopping every few seconds to reach down and stick her hands in the sand. Aunt Janice hugged me, and in that exact moment, I felt a sudden sense of peace and calm wash over me. We spent the afternoon together. She asked me about school and hobbies. I told her that I had just got a guitar for my birthday and that I couldn't wait to start learning to play. I played in the sand and collected seashell, seashells with Maddie, and we laughed together. Aunt Janice told me how happy she was to see me, and of course I felt the same way, but I didn't really know how to express it at the time. So in that typical, awkward, preteen sort of way, I nodded my head and just sort of grunted in agreement. When the time came for Aunt Janice and Maddie to leave, a lump formed in my throat. I felt sad, but I also had a feeling that I couldn't put it into words at the time. Looking back as a grown man, I recognize now that feeling was anger. Anger because I had believed my dad's stories about evil and hell. Anger because he had cut her off from our family. I was angry because I missed out on the privilege of having an ongoing relationship with her. I think of my time on the beach with Angelis often, and I always remember it with fondness. She was full of love and grace and beauty, and I know for sure those things do belong in this world. 2007. I was 30 years old and happily married with my own one-year-old daughter. There was a family wedding coming up in Los Angeles, and my wife and I decided this would be a great chance for a wee holiday, so we booked our tickets. Around that same time, I had learned that my Aunt Janice had been diagnosed with cancer, and I was thinking about her a lot. I had seen her only once since that day on the beach, and that encounter had been brief. My dad had made sure of it. I knew very little about her, only that she had finally been allowed to marry her lifelong partner, and that their oldest daughter, Maddie, was now a teenager. I had felt regret for letting so many years go by without reaching out to her and her family. But this was an opportunity to reconnect. So I managed to track down her email address. I reached out, and she invited us to come down at their family home in San Diego. That week, we stayed in an apartment in Los Angeles, along with my mom and dad. When I told my dad where we were heading, he became very angry, and we got into an argument. During the fight, he said that he couldn't believe that I would take my family into such evil. But this time, I didn't let his words go unchecked. I challenged him, and I told him that I believed he was wrong. I reminded him that his, that his sister was a beautiful person and a loving human being, and that being gay would never change that fact. Many years later, my dad actually acknowledged that, he had, that I had been right to challenge him, and he felt some remorse for his words that day. So we drove down to San Diego and arrived at Anchonese's house with pizza. Initially, she and her partner were cautious and reserved, understandably, but in no time the atmosphere changed, and before we knew it, we were sharing memories, looking at old photographs, and laughing together. Maddie looked after our daughter and played with her. 
I remembered the day on the beach playing with her when she was the same age as my daughter, and that made me smile. Near the end of our time together that evening, I had the chance to ask for forgiveness for the pain and grief and heartache that my family had caused them over the years, and they graciously offered forgiveness. In tears and in laughter, bridges were built that night. Lines that had previously been drawn began to shift, and my family's history began to change. That night, for the first time in my lifetime, everyone belonged in my family. 2009. My wife and I had moved from America to Northern Ireland and had been living here for about a year when I learned that my Aunt Janice's battle with cancer was over and she had passed away. I experienced the sadness in the weeks that followed, grieving the loss of her life. I felt some disappointment that I had not had more time with her over the years. At first it felt as if the love and beauty she brought into the world was gone, but I would soon realize that this was not the end and that I could carry on that torch. Her death inspired me in my own life to bring love and beauty into the world. I would begin to choose to live my life in a way that honored her memory. I would choose to be the kind of person and friend that loves, honors, and affirms every single human being on the planet. Later that year, I picked up the same guitar I had told my aunt about when I was 12 on the beach, and I wrote a song with these words for her. I've been holding you close to my heart. I'm missing you tonight. It's only a matter of time before I fall asleep. Maybe I'll see you in my dreams. When I close my eyes, I see you. With love in your eyes, I see you. With the strength to survive. If I could only have one more moment with you, I would never let you go. I will never let you go. Thanks so much, Jesse. That was beautiful. And before that, it was Donna Feehan. And if you're wondering what the October 21st reference was in Donna's story, well, you're going to have to Google it because, well, it's complicated. You can see photos from all of our 10x9s on our social media feeds, Facebook, Twitter and Instagram, where a like, a share or a retweet can make all the difference. And also check out our website, 10x9.com, for all the info on upcoming events. Now, before the final story, I just wanted to tell you about an email from a podcast listener in Australia, Beck Aiken, who lives in Port Macquarie in New South Wales. I'll put it up on Facebook, but I wanted to share one part of it here. Beck writes, The beauty in the storytelling on 10 by 9 is that it reaches us all in different ways. My husband was incredibly moved by the story of kindness a woman showed a struggling alcoholic. My son roared with laughter at the father-son trip to the races. My daughter was fascinated by the story on the troubles and this sparked a whole new topic of conversation on something she had never heard of. And for me, herein lies the beauty of your podcast, that as a mother living in New South Wales, I can listen to your podcast with my family and be moved and amused by different stories, but then remind my children that there's a whole world outside their very safe bubble and that to be engaged and interested in it is the most wonderful thing. So a big thank you to Beck and her husband Andrew and of course 10 by 9 fans Nicholas, Annabelle, Philippa and Alice and best wishes from our side of the world to yours. And now here's our final story. This was recorded when we made our first trip to Fela in West Belfast. It's from regular contributor Nula McKeever and she gets us off to an unconventional start. 
Take it away, Nula. Good. Keep it good. I'm a knife point. I want you to go. When I point. This is better than I imagined. Okay, ready? partners. Let me take you all back in time now. No, I better stop doing a crappy American accent or I'll be lynched. Okay, that was great context because tonight uh, I want to talk about westerns. I grew up watching westerns. We all did in those days. Um, we watched cowboys and Indians. We dressed up as cowboys and Indians. We played cowboys and Indians. Completely politically incorrect, of course, and it wouldn't happen nowadays. Of course it wouldn't. Now it would be foreign invaders and brave indigenous defenders. <laughs> Brave, not braves. Bully men, not cowboys. But back in those far-off days of the early 1970s, we lived a more simple, dare I say, unquestioningly stupid life. Even as we ourselves, the indigenous people, were defending our territory against the invaders on our very own streets here, we still projected love and admiration onto the white guys on the TV screen. Forgive us, we knew not what we did. So we all wanted to be the heroes, the guys in the hatch, you know, those guys who could ride out <clears throat> for days on horses, seemingly equipped only with a tiny rolled up blanket on the back of their saddle. That used to puzzle me. You know, TV and film never showed where they magic the frying pans out of. They didn't have your bag. Or, or the beans and the bacon that went into the pans. No, these guys, they travel light in theory. So in our house, growing up, one of the favorite TV heroes was the Virginian. Does anybody remember the Virginian? I can't remember the theme song, um, but anyway, I remember him. He would ride up to the front and look, and he was tall, chiseled, good-looking, always on the side of justice, kind of like Jesus, only cooler. <laughs> In a button-down shirt and leather chaps. Woof. It was my pre-vegan days. I was the youngest of seven children, a small family up our way. So of course I loved what my older siblings loved. I especially loved what my brothers loved because they were closest to me in age and we all played together. Well, I say together. I was just a girl, of course. So I was allowed to play when the boy numbers dropped down low enough. It's just the way it was back then and I took my sideline female status on the chin like a man. I cried a lot. So I wasn't the hero. Even in the story, I'm not the hero. I'm not really even in the story itself. I'm back at home watching from the edge while the males are getting all the action. I'd have actually made a perfect Western woman because, of course, the Westerns didn't show life as it was when they were set. No, they reflected life as it was when they were made. So it was really the 1950s and 1960s America that was up there on the big screen, even if everyone was dressed like it was half a century earlier. So while in truth the Wild West was populated with tough, hard-working women settling the land, smoking and drinking and acting about girls, the only ones we ever saw on screen were the meek wives, always with a dishcloth in their hand, fixing coffee in a log cabin and or gazing off camera with a mix of admiration and apprehension as their brave with a small b man rode off to kick some brave with a capital B ass. But I bet you underneath those corsets there were beating hearts of envy and frustration at being relegated to the role of the onlooker, 
Little women, big resentment. <laughs> so in this story, as I say, I'm not the hero. I'm not even a woman. It's 1971. I'm only seven. My big brother, John, he's 10, which is pretty grown up in my eyes. And on the day in question, he undoubtedly became my hero. It was a Saturday, Saturday morning in summer. It was before August the 9th, 1971. So the wildness of the West had not become quite as wild as it was about to get. We were still pretty much living in an innocent mind space as kids, influenced more by what we saw on the TV than by the real fighting that was going on in our city. Violence was still something mostly that came neatly packaged in a 55-minute programme where the good guys always won. And the world was not a scary place, not really. On this morning in question, I was in our kitchen having a summertime breakfast. We always got Rice Krispies instead of cornflakes when we were on our holidays. And there was still some left, amazingly, when we got home. So I guess I made it downstairs really quickly, you know, to make sure I got my share of the snap, crackle and pop extravaganza. Woohoo! we knew how to live. I can't remember exactly how the news broke, but what I do recall is the absence of any panic whatsoever. Presumably, it was only when I asked, where's John, that I heard the news. He's run away, my mother announced calmly as she cleared away breakfast dishes with a cigarette propped on the wee metal ashtray that always sat in the windowsill above the sink. Snap, crackle, and what? He left a note, she went on, pausing to lift the fag and have a puff. Smoke coming out of her mouth alongside her words, reading them in greyness and doom. He's run away with two of his friends to have an adventure. <laughs> Apparently. Could you imagine the scene nowadays of three ten-year-old boys disappeared? In fact, could you imagine three ten-year-old boys having the wet, the imagination, or the inclination to run away nowadays? <laughs> Where would I plug my Xbox into? <laughs> It'd make me my dinner. If it happened now, it would be wild. The police would be called, parents distraught, media on it, you know, social and otherwise. Everyone alert, tears, clutchings, implorings to God and anyone who knows anything, dot, dot, dot. But back then, 1971, our kitchen, eight foot square, back door open, sunny day, smell of burnt toast and squeezy, tea still warm-ish in the big pot on the gas stove, me in the shorts and t-shirt that I'd had on me all week. My <laughs> we didn't have a washing machine. My mother in the apron she'd had on her all her life, as far as I could recall. <laughs> Two of us silently contemplating a handwritten note left on the kitchen counter earlier in the morning. He's taken the small frying pan, my mother announced over my head. <coughs> frying pans are the thing tonight. He's taken the small frying pan, my mother announced over my head, and a haze of embassy regal. Some of the others must have taken sausages from home. There's nothing missing here. We lived not only without a washing machine, we had no fridge either, so food was bought as it was needed. There was no such thing as having meat sitting about overnight. It was just not done. I started to cry, but it wasn't from fear for my big brother's safety. I don't think that occurred to any of us. No, my tears were completely selfish. If there had been a film camera, I would have been gazing just to the side of it with a look of pure sadness pouring down my cheeks. My brother had left me. Somehow I got past the grief. Maybe my mother consoled me that he'd be back, but I doubt that. She wasn't the consoling type. More likely, time passed and my thoughts moved on to practical matters. He was somewhere. So where was he? How far could they have got? We lived in West Belfast. If you went on up the Glen Road, past the primary school, past the brothers, past the brewery, well, you were out in the country. 
They could be anywhere. They were out in the Wild West having who knows what adventures with cap guns, pen knives. Our John had just got one for his ninth birthday and a frying pan. <laughs> Jesus, I was so jealous. <laughs> of course, the romance of it all was doomed from the start. My father, father was phoned at his work. He wasn't going to leave work to go and search for his missing son. I mean, it wasn't that urgent. <laughs> no, he would take a wee drive around when he came home for his dinner, which is what you called your lunch in those days. Daddy came home. He was really tall. He really was tall. Slim, chiselled, gorgeous. But he didn't wear a hat or chaps. Normally a blue jacket and a scowl. <laughs> I think this day was more put out by having his dinner time interrupted than by the fact that his son was officially missing. So he had his dinner and then I was allowed to get in the front seat of the car to go with him to bring home the herd. <laughs> Would there be a standoff if we found them? A shootout? A telling off? Smacking? Words? Bad atmosphere for days? Romance wasn't quite so romantic when it met reality. Within 10 minutes, the game was up. As the car lumbered up the steep gradient of Hannestown Hill, we spied smoke rising straight up in the still summer air. Just half a field back from the road, the three amigos had made camp. They'd built a fire, lit it, and had cooked and eaten every single bit of food they brought with them meant to last for days. I do believe they were more relieved to be found as it saved them having to admit they hadn't really thought the whole thing through. <laughs> I'm also struck that being typical males from West Belfast, the first thing they did on their adventure was get the pawn on. <laughs> Can I break off here to tell a wee side story that I love? My friend Luna Boyle was on holiday in Africa and uh, they were in the queue to come home in downtown Africa. And then the airport... <laughs> And there was a couple from Northern, from Belfast in the queue with them. Well, I was, I was smashing. It was all right. We were sent, she says, on our 25th wedding anniversary for Safari. Our kids club together. Give us a holiday of a lifetime. She says, well, did you enjoy it? She says, yeah. And then she says to the husband, what about you? He says, I was grand, but can't wait to get home and get the pawn on. <laughs> My friend said to them, did you, not, did you not enjoy the food here? She says, it was all right, but... As I always say, give me a sausage any day, at least you know what you're getting. <laughs> anyway, back in 1971. So we got the boys in the car. I don't recall shouting or words or smacking or anything bad at all. Maybe I'd wiped, I'd wiped it from my memory film because there was enough horrible stuff going on all around. I didn't need the store anymore. But I do recall being even more in awe of my big brother than ever after that. He had gone off into the unknown, into the Wild West, seeking adventure. He had stepped out of the ordinary. He had done the first of many pioneering things that he would go on to do in his life. After that day, he didn't just watch the Virginian. He was the Virginian, my hero with a frying pan. Thank you. That's it for this week from the podcast. A big thank you to all our amazing venues and audiences over the summer and to you for listening. But of course, the biggest thank you goes to David, Donna, Jesse and Nula. Don't forget to check out Telltales on BBC Radio Ulster and the BBC Sounds app. Keep up to date with all the 10 by 9 news on our website, 10 by 9com plus our social media feeds. And if you enjoy the podcast, spread the word. And if you can give us a rating or even a review at Apple Podcasts, we'd be very grateful. Our theme tune comes from the Free Music Archive and is by Fantastic Swimmers, while our incidental music is by Brent Bourgeois, and we got that at Facebook Sounds. For now, bye-bye.